As we return to the story of David's life at Ziklag, and our um, story is connected to the past Sunday, last Sunday, uh, living a limbo at Ziklag, and David was living in this spiritual limbo for 16 months. Let's do a quick recap before we actually hear about crisis that he actually had at the end of that story. <clears throat> the first part is David somehow off. Out of desperation, he thinks to himself. He talks to his heart. As long as I live in Judah and Saul's around, King Saul's around, he's not going to stop, even though I spared his life twice. He says nice things and regretful things. I know that he will not stop pursuing, to, pursuing me to kill me. So David fled from Saul to Ziklag, which is the land of Philistine, Israel's enemy. In so doing, he leaves God out of the picture. That's what spiritual limbo looks like. He's not denying with fist about God, but he's actually in a fog. It, it just forgets God. In his plan, there is no God. And he lives in this spiritual dryness without writing psalms, without turning to God, with desperate call. That's how it begins. But the one step of compromise actually had a chain effect, you know, which made David a brutal mercenary who actually goes to town to town in the name of getting things for I mean, to feed his 600 men plus their wives and children, probably are maybe uh, 1,500, close to 2,000. And he also becomes a liar to King Philippian Lord, King Achish, King of Gath. And then he fooled him pretty good. And he begins to live a double life. Uh, telling King Achish, today I raided the southern part of Judah, which is his own people, Israelites. But in, in fact, he actually raided against Amalekites and other Canaanites, the ones that God actually commanded from even Joshua days. To, to as, as God gave them the promised land to wipe them out, to cast them out out of the land. So his uh, double life in spiritual limbo finally caught up to him. His uh, resourceful, resourcefulness and his self-reliance actually put him in a trap by his own doing. King Achish said, we're going to go at war against Israel. And then five, five old, the regional five and five lords of Philippi, uh, Philistines were composed as the nation Philippines, uh, Philipp, Philistines. Then Achish, trusting David so much, you're going to go. And he's in big trouble now. Why? Will he fight against Israelites, his own people? It's a treason. And it was a calling from God for him to be the king over Israel, God's anointed one. That will be absurd. That will disqualify him from becoming a king. But will he go against 
Philistines and become war hero again. First place, that's how he got in trouble with Saul. Saul got jealous. And every time David did something right and became popular and become heroic, Saul's jealous, jealousy even increased even more. So no way out. But God intervened through, incidentally, ironic intervention was from enemies. The four other lords, commanders, absolutely disagreed with Achish. You cannot take this Hebrew and his 600 men to come with us. What if he turns in the middle of a war and become our adversary? So it was definitely God's intervention, God's providence. So um, in light of this God's faithfulness, the messiness of God, David's life, delivering him out of the trap by ironic intervention of the Philippines Lord, Philippines Lord, our story actually begins an ending of chapter 29, which is 29 ends with verse 11 this way. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel where the war battle happens. Today we're going to cover the entire chapter 30 and the four parts of heading Let's make the observation, quick observations, and then we're going to draw, once again, three lessons beneath what's happening there. The first part is, I will title it, Unthinkable Crisis. And the key thing is, these grown men wept until exhausted with weeping. Verse 1, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev, against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burnt it with fire and taken captive the woman and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters are taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised his voices, their voices, and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was great, greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in Saul, each of his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself, in the Lord his God. It was truly an unthinkable. Think about it. All the men were out in the battle, at least acting like going into the battle with King Achish and other Philippines, Philistines' armies. And in, in, in Ziklag town, all the people who were left were women and children. No man who could even eat, resist any kind of attacks and raids. And they burnt it. And their, their, their materials, their possessions are taken. The wor to worsen it all, to take to be taken of their own wives and children. That wailing becomes so bitter because of that. Can you imagine 
grown men, mighty warriors, wailing out loud all day long. And they feel so exhausted. They had no strength left to weep anymore. And to top it all, these men were beginning to blame. It's David's fault. We should not be in Ziklag. What in the world are we doing here? And then they're turning into an angry mob, trying to stone him. This is the worst nightmare crisis that David ever had so far. His own man turning against him. But think about the effect, the notice the spiritual effect on, of this unthinkable crisis on David. Like subtle sentence, David strengthened himself in the Lord. Do you remember the expression last time that we heard? was from Jonathan, his friend. Jonathan, when David was in a discouraged moment because of Saul's army was chasing him, and Jonathan came and uttered the words of Samuel, which is God's promise that you will become king and I will become next to you. I'll take second, no problem whatsoever. And God will surely make this happen. The sovereignty and promises of God was a source of encouragement. So what's happening here is crisis and bitterness, chaos, wailing, pain, unthinkable things, wrath. And they don't even know who did it to them. But what's beyond, beneath all that is God is actually waking David up from his spiritual slumber. That's the second part that follows uh, in starting with verse 7 through 10. Entitled, Awakened by the Crisis. And uh, Verse 7. And David said to Abithar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Ephod was the high priest gown. And then e e within the ephod, in the pocket, was, uh, there's a urim and thummim, which was a kind of stone that God actually respond to any inquiries that the high priest, King David, is asking, that he will actually have direct answers. Incredible uh, way. And he, um, maybe I'm trying, going ahead a little bit. Hasn't done this for a long time. At least 16 months. So, Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered them, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and, sh and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. David pursued, and he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook before. Waking up from this spiritual slumber by pain and crisis, what does David do? He returns to his own, own old self. The first thing that he, he does is inquiring of the Lord. Remember, 
attacking and saving the city of Keila from Philistines, he came with that same posture. Should I go up and save them? They are many. We are so few. And his soldiers were afraid. And for his soldiers' sake, as a leader who is tuned with his followers, gentle, convincing leadership, he asked, inquired of the Lord second time. Not for him. He's convinced. But for, for his, his followers, his men. And throughout his life, he did that quite consistently. The first thing that he is doing now is inquiring of the Lord, which means his faith is turned on again. His vision sharp. His lamp is trimmed. His courage rekindled. That's what crisis does, actually. The third part is God's providence. This one is a little more obvious than surface story. Uh, Verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs, figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom you belong? Do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this man? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this man. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread aboard over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the Great spoil they had taken from the land of Philistines and from the land of Judah. You see what's happening here, right? Um, Because Philistines were going out to the war against Israel, and because Ziklag, David and his men, going out to the war to him, and Amalekites took advantage of that, and went town to town, made a raid, because there's all the women and children only. Piece of cake. They were gathering so much plunders. And this is a party time for them. They were probably so too drunk to even fight against David's soldiers coming. Verse 17. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels, camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David David brought back all. 
David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. The one that, the mob that who was trying to stone David and blame David now, praising David as their hero again. Do you see the Egyptian servant who was sick and left behind was not a coincidence that actually God's providential will was there. God's sovereign hand was in the picture. He was placed there. Without, without that provision from God's providence, how would they know where to go find who did this? They might have an anger uh, taken out to some other town, could be the innocent town. But not only that, coming upon the Amalekites, David, not only, nothing was missing, everything's recovered, on top of that, all the spoils and plunders Amalekites had, this is uh, more than he, they could ask for. They're br bringing it. Our, the, the climax of our story doesn't stop here. It actually begins in the next section, I call it a blessings of the crisis or disguised blessing of the crisis. Verse 21 to 31. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what, with, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is, who goes down into the battle so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. When David came to Ziklag, he sent a part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was not those in it was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of Negev, in Jatir, in Aroer, in Sephamoth, in Ashtamai, in Rakal, in the cities of Jeramilites, in the cities of Kenites, in Horma, in Borashan, in Ethek, in Hebron. For all the places David had and his men had roamed. This unthinkable crisis has turned into an incredible blessing to David. I want caution. To think rightly in our theology, we must not expect equation. If I listen and obey God and 
uh, trust in God's guidance, God will give X, Y, and Z. That's a prosperity gospel. This is a unique situation. God's sovereign purpose and plan was on David, and then he willed it this way. In some cases, we will not see the payback or equalizing God's justice until we get to heaven. So with that caution, the underlying theme in this Ziklag story, including last week and this week, is God's sovereignty. What you see is not all. And what, what God had then done in this crisis was purely grace. Actually, the gospel of grace is in the middle of 1 Samuel right here. What David did was actually the gospel living. Because he had received freely from the Lord, he acknowledged that it is the Lord's grace and mercy to his group. Not just a person who actually worked it wasn't a consequence or a payback, I mean the wages of their work, but it was an unmerited favor for all of his group. So he, hence the reason why he said, this will be a rule from now on. Even after this instant, every time when plunder came back, Spoil came back from the war. Everyone shared. Acknowledging God's work, God's grace there. And his gift to the elders on the surface it seemingly looked like more of a political gesture. But no it is a sign of his regained vision and his regained calling from God. He is acting the way that God calls him to be. A future king who is concerned about. And did you, did you see the, um, David's compassion with the Egyptian servant who was sick? So we need to make observation very clearly. David didn't know anything about Egyptian. Why he was lying there, left dead. So he came with compassion and fed him and gave him food and drink. And some of the commentaries helps us to understand the cluster of uh, raisins and figs and bread and water was far more generous than typical soldier would get. The type of generosity that his soldiers could get, jealous. David did that not because he knew that I could get something out of this guy. Some kind of a source and information. He didn't know anything. He volunteered this information later. Once again, sense of renewed calling, who he was, his identity, and his mission, his role. So here are three lessons as we close. Number one, God uses crisis in our lives to wake us up and to get us out from living in spiritual limbo back to a life of spiritual vitality and focus. Just looking back at the story, verse 7 and 8, 
when David said to Abithar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the effort. This is a pure sign of, and I'm, I, I got it now. I'm, my, my soul is awake. I'm not in spiritual slumber anymore. I just cannot afford to living on myself, reliance anymore. I run to you, Lord. Next time, when you feel discouraged and distressed, when you feel like this cannot be happening to me, would you remember this? That it is a God's wake-up call? That you actually have a choice to run to God? To run to something else escaping Well, sometimes it's a legitimate things like Netflix and just going out and just daydreaming and doing nothing and sleeping a lot or just things like sometimes illegitimate things. Going to bar and alcohol, woman, or lose life. Or even some illegal drugs that help you to come down. Christ is actually offers an opportunity. I will talk about that a little bit later. But looking at the Psalm 119, verse 67 and 71 gives us the same principle here. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Yes, we do pray for safety and protection. We do pray for health. We do pray for smooth pathway for our children and for our work and for our business, for our church. But when real life offers disaster, remember that God is sovereign. He is not shuddered like us. He is not in trouble like us. He actually uses that to wake us up, to bring us back to his bosom closer. C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to our deafening ear. So we must persevere hardship and pain. Not because we are some kind of a masochistic people or we're into sadism, but because we see the spiritual effect on us. So we're, when we are living in a spiritual limbo, have you talked to your wives and your husbands or your friends who are drifting away from God? A lot of them, they want to come back to God. But it's enable, un, incapable, drowning. But when God gets attention from them, don't save them early. Because he will, they will stop running to God. They become codependent with us. Same way, when we are experiencing pain, don't try to look out for immediate gratification or relief from community too fast unless we don't get desperate enough to call out to God. But you feel like you're utterly alone on this earth God, if you don't hear me, that's a bright darkness that we could experience amidst the crisis. So that's number two. A mark of true faith in crisis is strengthen oneself 
in the Lord, turning from self-reliance to God-reliance. The fact that David strengthened himself is actually shows that God prepared David for this. His faith was real, not flake, not fake. Second Corinthians 1, 9 to 10, Paul, Apostle Paul writes, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death because he was so under the heavy distress when he was in Asia, uh, Ephesus. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. At the same time, if it's, if it's like a, the movie scene or drama, simultaneously switching back to the, where Saul was, which is our next study after the retreat, Saul was going through distress, his own crisis. So instead of running to God, he runs to a sorcerer to call out Samuel, who's dead, to call out his spirit, to, to ask him for guidance because God doesn't answer. And he killed, after all, all the priests. So he has no priest to call upon to even ask. His end, his self-resolvefulness, self-reliance never ended and took him to the battle and he died with his sons. When he came, this is the same thing happening when David came back to Ziklag and he actually recovered everything. What a contrast. So when the crisis comes, real faith turns back to God, runs to God. What does it mean to strengthen oneself in the Lord? It's too simply to draw our hope and our energy from promises of God. God clearly promised in his scripture. In David's case, it's through Samuel. And he strengthened himself in that. Do you do that? Do you turn from self-reliance to God-reliance when things go back, the bottom drops out on you? Oh, how important this is even for us to, to think about in our day-to-day. And, I, you know, this week, without telling you all the details, it's a very uh, depressing week for me because I finally took up the courage to hearing test. Some of you guys have been telling me that I've been repeating. Repeat. What, what did you say? I, that's something big denial for me. And then to hear that my left ear is kind of bad. So my coming out of denial and taking courage was, okay, one hearing aid. Mentally, I don't know, maybe I was prepared for that only. To hear that I, have a, I need a hearing aid in both ears and that it costs thousands of dollars. I, I go, why do I live? I might just old and I become become an old man who talk about death without without really meaning to do it. Right? When we are doing that, we don't need a big crisis. But when you are discouraged and dis- distressed, this will be a 
incredible source of power that we are able to strengthen ourselves before God in the Lord. Or King James Version said, encouraged himself. Rather than going to each person, and sometimes I do that. You know, I'm vain in, in the sense, okay, something, say something good. I need some encouragement. And to, to my sons, I say, say something nice to me. But in, in seriousness, isn't that what we do? To look for some things that we could compensate. At least I have this. Third and last lesson. Crisis offers us God-given opportunities to regain our true calling for God's sovereign purpose in our character and conduct. I, I think, once again, this is the key lesson. Let me repeat that one more time. Crisis offers us God-given opportunities to regain our true calling for God's sovereign purpose in our character and conduct, in our being and doing in everyday life. I don't mean to read over all these verses. Verse 11, 23, 24, 26. There's a repeated signs of regained sense of his calling in David. Not only showing compassion to Egyptian servant who was left, left dead. His calling to be a holy and righteous before God as a king, as a people of the Lord, as a Christ follower, even for us. And his practice about grace and gospel living, that it is actually sharing of grace, not, you know, work salvation, acknowledging what God has done, and they shall share alike and to remember the elders of Judah and sharing the gifts from the Lord and then saying finally he's not a mercenary anymore this is gift from the spoils from the enemies of the Lord he recalled and remembered God's calling In Joshua and Deuteronomy, God's command to wipe out and cast out all the Canaanites so that Israelites would not be tempted and mixed with idolatry and Gentile woman, Canaanite woman. So clearly, definitely, there's a sense in that. 2 Thessalonians, verse 10, verse, chapter 1, verse 11 to 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve or good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? The calling is actually more important than our physical life. Why? Identi our identity, our mission comes from that calling according to God's sovereign purpose. And that regaining of our calling means to live out our character and conduct worthy to God's sovereign purpose. So I, I, I think I need to be much more clear and practical here. By calling, there are two kinds of calling there. 
one for salvation, that God calls us to his bosom. He chose us, and he calls us, and he calls us our children, sons of God. That's identity, okay? Nature, our being is changed. Secondly, God calls us to his kingdom, the mission, expanding of his kingdom, doing the part of his kingdom work. In so doing, there are a couple of clarification as well. In our individualized, individualistic society, when we think about calling, we think about our own significance and doing something and that we are be becoming a contributor of something good. So do we think about what we have and what we are good at and things like that. Calling is more communal, more corporate than individual. Case in point. If we, if we joined in an army, our country, U.S. Army or, or Navy or Marine or Air Force, what is your calling? You don't think about what's my job. Tell me what to do. Am I working with this gun or this machine or this car? Your calling is the calling of entire army to bring the protection and unity against the, against the enemy. Then within that, our individual calling comes. Then within our nature of our salvation, as a God's children, a God's Christ follower, our character, what we need to be contributing as the members of the body of Christ comes. Simply put, at Crossway, God's calling is this, for all of us, not because of, I'm the pastor only, but all of us, because really the head of the church is not me, head of the church is Christ, that we become pleasing church to God, a body of Christ, a family of God that is glorifying God, pleasing to Christ. To that, you and I are called. So even as we're going to the retreat, one of the callings, how can I contribute to the unity that God pleases we, as we love one another. There are some people who cannot, inevitable reasons. But in future, I urge you to think about your calling to align yourself with what God is doing. And to build church, this church, this church is a never human organization. That's the beginning of our uh, corruption of the church. I have so much to say, but I think I need to stop here. Because I, 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 would, I would love you to see this when you are renewed with your calling. You want to act like, not only act like, but your character will show Christ-likeness. Become like Christ that pleases the Lord. Once again, Eugene Peterson's spiritual insight has been great. I quote from a leaf over the wall again. I close with this. Peterson writes, it was enough that they get their wives and children back, but nothing else. Not a single piece of Amalekite plunder. Not so much as one sheep or goat or a heifer. Just then, David stepped in. His intervention is the climax of the story. David intervened at the brook Besor, and his intervention is pure gospel. David ruled that everybody at the brook that day, the 200 who had been unable to continue and had been given the undramatic 
behind-the-scenes work of watching over the supplies at the brook. And the 400 who had fought for their lives were equals and would share everything equally. Everything we have is a gift from God. We shall we share it with all who are saved by God. Everything they experienced was sure grace. How could they talk about dividing things up fairly? God was treating them with a marvelous and generous grace. David would see to it that they treated one another with marvelous and grace, grace, generous grace. Sisters and brothers, let's do this gospel living. Coming back to spiritual vitality with a clear vision. Let's love one another deeply. Because God has freely loved us before we even choose to love him. And I pray that from this point on in our lives, the crisis will look differently, look different to us through the eyes of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Indeed, you have given us salvation freely, so much of blessings freely for us by your grace. Wake us up from our spiritual slumber. Help us to regain our calling before you and live like your sons and daughters, Christ followers, who mean business for the kingdom of God, who contributes in unity. To that end, we pray that Christ would be the head and the unifying bond of our church, of our upcoming retreat, and of everything we do. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.